0: Ephesians chapter 6, we'll be looking at verses 10 through 13, but before we do, let's open in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, you tell us in your word to to fear not, for for you are our God, that we are not to be dismayed. And Lord, as we, we come today to your word, we come to a very important topic, and we just pray for your spirit to come and not just to be present with us, but Lord, to teach us. God, give us, give me words to speak, your words to speak, and nothing else. But Lord, also we pray that you would give us ears to hear as well. Lord, that we might trust you more, that we might understand more clearly the reality of what you have done and and who we are in union with you, our Lord and Savior. And God, we pray that these things would be to your glory and praise. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen, so let me ask you how many of you have had a demonic encounter this week? A demonic encounter? Should I have you raise your hand or not no we won 't do that but that 's sort of an unusual question for to be asked in a, in a Presbyterian church or or maybe even in most evangelical churches in the West. But brothers and sisters, since the 18th century enlightenment, the worldview of the West has grown increasingly closed to the supernatural. And consequently, many people today deny a world in which God governs and in which the devil and his demons are our enemies. And young people, do you know what they call that worldview? Naturalism. In this view, everything has a natural cause and nothing exists beyond what we can see with our eyes or experience with our senses. The problem with that is is that the biblical worldview clashes with naturalism and not only embraces a sovereign God who rules over the world and the events of our lives, but also acknowledges Satan and demons. And while we as Christians might have a biblical worldview in certain areas, perhaps our perspective is more naturalistic than we realize when it comes to this idea of the spirit world. And, and, and I say that, and this is how I, oft- I think we oftentimes see it lived out in our lives, is that whenever we encounter a struggle, whenever we encounter a problem in our lives, we oftentimes instinctively think this, what is wrong and how do I fix it? What is wrong? And how do I fix it? Now, we may not verbally say those things, but that's oftentimes our attitude. And, and we often see our struggles as primarily, or maybe sometimes even only, human struggles. And so we oftentimes look for human solutions. And the way it might work itself out is this, that you find yourself in a quandary about something. And so what do you do? You jump on Facebook and, and you throw out a question to your friends and say, Hey, I'm struggling with this what do I do or maybe you text someone or give someone a call or or you think hmm I maybe need to find a a good book I'll call Ben Franks he knows all these books and he can maybe recommend a good book for me to read on this topic or maybe do a Google search to see if anybody else struggles with these things or for some of us we don't really care about what other people think we just think if I could just have a few minutes by myself and think through this I think that I can come up with a solution But when we look at the circumstances of our lives from this perspective, we view the universe as closed and we leave little room for the supernatural world. And so although we may give credence to God's providence, the spiritual and supernatural do not factor as much into our lives uh, as it might. Now, in contrast to to someone maybe who would hold such a view about the supernatural world as other Christians who sort of view spiritual warfare as the lens through which they see everything. And they see a demon behind every rock. I mean, sometimes it even gets to the point where, as, as Christians, they no longer really take responsibility for their own actions. And instead, it sort of comes down to the fact that the devil made me do it. So I need to cast out this demon and I need to cast out that demon because it's all Satan that is doing these things to us. But but as we come to the conclusion of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Paul makes a point to highlight the reality of spiritual warfare in the life of every believer. And and as we as we look at this, we we need to understand that all that we have talked about, Paul is now saying is to be lived out in light of spiritual warfare. In other words, our relationship with the God who eternally loved us and made us his own, our need uh, for a unified relationship with others in the church whose varying gifts help to to help us become spiritually mature, the beauty of living in a relationship in in our family where we see the gospel lived out, all of these are done as the devil... And his followers seek to battle against us in our everyday lives. And so as, as you encounter struggles, as you get up every day, every morning, and you say, I'm going to read my Bible, and you find that a challenge and a struggle, it's because there's opposition. As you think, you know, I'm going to... I'm going to commit to have family worship. I hear Pastor Rick talk about that all the time, and I'm going to do that. And then you find it just seems like there's never a good time to do that, or it's always so hard to do, or everybody's so scattered. It's because there's spiritual opposition. Maybe in your, in your marriage relationship, you, it's not like you and your spouse fight all the time, but you have these little tips, and sometimes you even think, why are we getting so upset with one another? It's because there's opposition. Or maybe there's conflict with your your children or, or kids or young people. You think, you know, my parents just don't understand me. I just feel like they never listen. They're always just telling me what to do. And they never hear the things that I have to say. It's because there's opposition. Or maybe you struggle with depression that causes you to question God's love. You see, we must realize that these are more than mere human struggles and experiences. And, and many Christians, I think, would testify to the fact that the home is the place where their greatest spiritual failures are experienced and their inconsistencies. I mean, we all look so good here on Sunday morning, and I think sometimes we think, but if you could just see me in day-to-day life, if you could see me in my interaction with my roommate or, or what I look like during the week, you may not like me so much, but it's usually oftentimes in the midst of these ordinary details of life where Satan oftentimes works the most. But I think it's neat that as Paul comes to the end of this book and he's writing to this, this church, this group of people, uh, he, he understands that they are a group of people who once were steeped in the occult. They once were steeped in magical practice and powers of darkness. And Paul doesn't dismiss these realities of these powers. You know how sometimes parents would just say to their kids, Oh, there's no monster under your bed. Just go to bed. Just forget about it. And they just sort of dismiss their struggles. Really, Paul doesn't do that. Rather, he validates the spiritual realities that the Ephesians already knew about but he equips the believers for the battle at hand. And brothers and sisters, that's what he wants us to do this morning, is to be equipped for that battle at hand. And we're going to look at that this week and, and next week. But in order to do that, we need to recognize several things. First of all, we need to recognize the battle. Um, the imagery that Paul uses at the close of this letter is definitely one of warfare. You know, he talks about even uh, wrestling with, with Satan and stuff. And, and and that word wrestle means hand to hand combat. And so, you know, it's, it's that of a war or of a battle. But it's not just here. We oftentimes, if, if you ask any Christian, where does the Bible talk about spiritual warfare? We always want to go to Ephesians 6. But the reality is, that's really ha- been happening since the beginning of, of human history. I mean, think back, and if you want, you can turn back to Genesis chapter 3. And and you see there that Satan twisted God's word, that, that he challenged his authority and he lied to our first parents, Adam and Eve, and, and they fell into sin. But that's not where the spiritual warfare began. Actually, rather, spiritual warfare has its origin in God's announcement to the serpent in the Garden of Eden after the fall. Look, if you would, at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is, let me remind you, this is God. And he's speaking to Satan. And this is what God says. And I will put enmity, that is hostility, that is antagonism, between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And then the entire Bible is an exposition of that divinely instituted antagonism or struggle between the serpent and his seed and the woman and her seed. And we see it throughout Scripture between Cain and Abel. We see it between Esau and Jacob. In Psalm chapter 2, we see the battle between the nations who rebel against the Lord and the Son of God. We see the, the false prophets as opposed to the prophets of God. And then finally and eventually we see Satan... And Jesus, and and part of Christ's mission when He came to Earth was to overthrow the work of the kingdom of darkness, and that means that every time that Jesus cast out a demon, kids, every time He healed someone who was sick or He raised them from the dead, Jesus was assaulting the kingdom of darkness. In essence, kids, Jesus was entering the strong man's house, binding him with his superior strength and plundering his stolen property. And we know that Jesus ultimately overthrew Satan at the cross. The cross was an act of judgment, evicting the ruler of this world. You know, years later, after Christ died, John was reflecting on Christ's incarnation and his death. And this is what he said in 1 John 3.8. He said the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And yet, many Christians live with little awareness of the spiritual warfare in which they are to be engaged. But brothers and sisters, how we think about this battle is critical to how we fight it. If, we don't even, if we're not even conscious of the fact that there's a spiritual battle going on, or if we think, oh, that's just something out there, or that just happens if intense circumstances come into my life, then that's going to affect how we are involved in that battle. But this text gives us a perspective on spiritual warfare that can dramatically shape our daily lives and show us how to engage rightly in this great war that goes on so so we need to recognize the battle, and the first thing we need to recognize in that battle is that it 's real, but the second thing we need to realize is, is the battle 's not what we think it is. the battle 's not as obvious as you might think you know when we think of warfare, we think of an enemy that 's easily identifiable i mean even with our Uh, war on terrorism, I mean it's sort of hard to tell where the enemy is going to come from and that is a very different war, but we know who the enemy is. We know that it is the, the terrorists, but the nature of spiritual warfare is supernatural and it's crafty. And look at verse 12, we read, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Now when Paul says that, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, he uses a first century Jewish way of saying that this conflict is not with weak, frail human beings. You know, we oftentimes forget this and we think that we're fighting against the media, don't we? Or we think that our enemy is the politicians or cultural expressions of immorality or society in general. That's that's what our enemy is. Or maybe we might mistakenly think it's our spouse or it's our kids or it's my boss at work if he would just get off my case life would be better or or my neighbor or my siblings whatever it might be but we must remember that the battle that God has put us in is much deeper and bigger than just that and Paul tells us who we're battling with he says not only for you know do we not wrestle against flesh and blood but we wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, against the present darkness, against the the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So our enemy in this battle is not those that we can see. It's not those with whom we interact on the internet or we read about in the news. Our real enemy is the spiritual forces of darkness. Now think about that. Think about the conflicts you had this week, okay? We all have had conflicts to some extent or another. Is that how we think when we have those conflicts? When you're in the midst of a disagreement with somebody else or you're having words or you're having a discussion with someone, do you think really what's behind this is the the forces of darkness? If we don't understand that it is a supernatural battle brothers and sisters we will lose it we will lose the battle and not only that but i think we will we'll be tempted to use the weapons of man rather than spiritual weapons so we we have we have seen this kind of difficulty ourselves even in our own country especially when we entered uh, the vietnam war you know, that was a war that we weren't really prepared for. I mean, we, we fought World War I. We fought World War II. We fought the Korean War. And when we went into Vietnam, we fought the war the, the same way that we had fought every other war. But well, we didn't understand that Vietnam was different, that our enemies had different tactics, that they had different objectives. And so we needed to change the way that we thought about fighting war. So our difficulty in Vietnam were not our soldiers... Not that they weren't, it's not that they weren't trained or because we didn't have the proper equipment and weaponry. And I know that many soldiers that went over and uh, suffered greatly in serving our country came back and our country didn't value them. But they weren't the problem. You know, the difficulty that we have is is that we weren't fighting the right way. And that can happen for us as Christians as well. If you're fighting against people and cultural trends and so forth, we're going to lose the battle. But if you, if you see your spouse as a problem, then you've lost. If you see your kids as the real issue, then you've lost. If you see your siblings or, or your boss as the one who doesn't understand and they're the problems, then you've lost. If you're not fighting against the forces of darkness, you will be overcome because it's a spiritual warfare. So we need to recognize the battle that's really happening out there, but second of all, we also need to recognize the enemy uh, and, and really uh, who he is. First of all, we see that the devil is powerful. Look at verse 12 again. You know, we talked about that there's rulers and authorities and cosmic powers and, and spiritual forces of evil. In the heavenly places and and sometimes commentators want to take each one of these and sort of break them down as if there 's this organization of evil out there that there 's different levels of, of demons, and, and you know maybe they have authority over different geographical locations and, and things such as this. I think the problem with such a view is that it seems to, to be speculative, and, and it's really hard from Scripture to, to prove such things. You know You might be able to pull a verse here or there to try to make it sound like that, but more likely what Paul wants us to see is that there are demonic forces at work fighting against the kingdom of Christ, and they are powerful forces. They are rulers. They are authorities. They are cosmic powers, spiritual forces. And that's why Paul describes them this way. They are rulers because they have power in the world. Now, let's just take just a moment and just do a a quick highlight of what the Bible says about the devil or or Satan. In in the Old Testament, you can get your pencils ready because I'm going to give you some verses that you can look up later. In the Old Testament, New Testaments, he's frequently called Satan, which also conveys the idea of an adversary. That Satan is the enemy of God and all of those who belong to him. He's also called the tempter in Matthew 4, 3 and 1 Thessalonians 3, 5. He's called the destroyer or um, in Revelation 9, 11. He's called the evil one Matthew 6.13. In addition to that, he's referred to as the dragon, the serpent of old, and a roaring lion, which reflect how cunning he is and fierce and, and dangerous and hostile towards us. 1 Peter 5.8, Revelation 12.3, and Revelation 20, verse two. Paul calls him the God of this age. And the prince of the power of the air—we saw that in Ephesians two two. Jesus calls him a murderer and a liar, John eight forty four, and the ruler of this world, John twelve thirty one, and John sixteen eleven. There's you see throughout this as you look at these different references, they express how powerful and deceptive he is, and that he is to some degree he rules over this world. Now. How do we reconcile that, though, with the fact that God is the sovereign God? Especially when we read verses like Colossians 2.15. Colossians 2.15, speaking of, of Jesus, said, "...He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him." And sometimes Satan is conveyed in modern Christianity as the one who has wrestled the scepter of authority from, from mankind, from Adam. And therefore he has gained the right to rule over the human race. Or, or some will say that the devil rules over the world, that God is sovereign over all, but God has given Satan the rule over the world. But as you look at Scripture, Satan really has no authority over mankind whatsoever. Rather, he is a beaten enemy, an imposter, and a liar, and a deceiver. He wants you to think that he has authority, but God has given Satan no dominion over mankind whatsoever. People are within the domain of Satan only because there is sin. Only as we give in to sin. So, Satan can't make us do anything. You might think of it this way. Satan has no authority over us, but he does have influence over us because of sin. He has no authority, but he has influence over us because of our sin. So he can only tempt us to make us think that he has power. So oftentimes Satan wants us to think that he is as powerful as God, so we might fear him. Or, or he wants us, if he can't convince us of that, he wants to deceive us into thinking that he doesn't exist And so you don't need to worry about him. So that way he can sort of work undetected. But Satan is powerful and influential when we seek to live in our own strength. But Paul warns us that we need to be ready for the battle. Um, Now, we need to be careful not to underestimate our enemy. Because Satan, while he has not been given any authority by God... He is definitely uh, because he is so powerful um, and also because the second point that I want us to see is that he is also cunning. He's also crafty. And because of these things, we should not underestimate him. So we must understand that there is more to our enemy than power. He is also cunning. One reason we don't recognize the battle that we're in is oftentimes because our enemy is so crafty. He attacks in a way that does not draw attention to himself, uh, but deflects the attention away from him. And no wonder Paul has to tell us and remind us that our enemy is not other human beings. That our enemy is really... Satan. So Paul tells us in verse eleven, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. If you have an older translation it may say the wiles of the devil. But really the word uh, for schemes is methodia, from which we get the English word method, And, and it suggests craftily planning with a deliberate intent to deceive. So, as John MacArthur points out, he said this word is oftentimes used to describe um, how a wild animal cunningly stalks his prey and then unexpectedly pounces on his prey. So it's like he, he, he looks at his prey until he finds just the right opening and then he plunges in and takes advantage of that moment. How like the devil to do the same with us, to be relentless in his pursuit of us Ever probing for our weaknesses, and just waiting till we 're not really even conscious of him, so that he might strike when he has the advantage now it 's interesting if you if you have your Bibles open to Ephesians six, just look back to chapter four verse fourteen, and you 'll see that uh, Paul also talks about deceitful schemes. Now the word schemes is the same word that 's used here in chapter six, and it 's used to describe false teaching of teachers, that the devil is cunning to twist the truth with the intent to deceive us and taking us down. So he is very cunning in the attack that he does, and he does it in such a way that we might succumb to his temptation. Now for us, we might look at uh, Satan and think, well, if he really wants to get to me, then he needs to, to persecute me. Isn't that like the ultimate of Satan's attacks, we might think? But oftentimes, I think, if we saw persecution coming, we would recognize that that was Satan's attacks. And so oftentimes, he comes at us more subtle. He comes at us sort of underhanded with things like discouragement, things like worry, things like great loneliness in our lives, or or maybe even compromise. You know, just thinking, well, I can just disobey God's word a little it won't really affect me and then next thing you know it sort of snowballs or we have confusion that leads to error or maybe even worse it leads to apathy as, as one commentator put it he said the tactics of Satan he plays both the bully and the beguiler a beguiler is a deceiver so he either bullies us coming at us with full force hitting us head on or he seeks to to deceive us and so that is our enemy. So here we are in a battle with a worthy opponent. But what we need to also recognize, as Paul tells us here, is not only the battle and the enemy, but also our hope. Brothers and sisters, we have to understand the hope that we have. Because we have a powerful enemy. And, and so he says in verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Paul commands us to be strong. Literally, this means to be strengthened, to be made powerful. So he's saying, brothers and sisters, be strengthened, be made powerful. And and also, this charge to be strong is in the passive voice in the original Greek, which means that this empowering is something that is done to us from an outside source. So, so uh, Paul is, tells us that we dare not look to ourselves for strength, but he calls us specifically to be strong in the Lord. It is something that is done to you by God. Here is where we find our strength, in the Son of God himself. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a glorious thought. Paul points us to Christ as our all-sufficient source of our strength, who by His mighty power gives us all that we lack. What does God's Word tell us? But to be anxious for nothing. But by what? Prayer and supplication present your request to God. As believers, we can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And what we see is as we are in the midst of the battle, the way that we stand strong is we turn our focus to Him and we come to Him in prayer and seeking His strength and His help. And He is the God who will give us that strength But there's other nuggets that we see in this as well. This phrase, to be strong, is also in the present tense, which indicates that in Christ we have constant, ongoing supply that we need for spiritual warfare. It's a continual action. As much strength as we need, Christ will give to us. Now, now what does that mean to be strong in the Lord? It it means to maintain an ongoing awareness that the Lord Jesus has superabundant stores of strength for us. And as we realize that, then we can draw on that strength as we turn to Him in prayer. And this means that, brothers and sisters, that our inability doesn't matter. Did you hear me? Our inability doesn't matter. So if you're here this morning and you feel weak and you think, God, I can't do this. I am struggling. Lord, this is more than I can handle. I empathize with you. I live beside you in that. It is a struggle that all of us have as Christians. But our ability isn't what matters. What matters is God's ability. And he said, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength and in His might. Now, why does Paul repeat all those words? Why didn't he just say, be strong? Why does he have to talk about strength and his might? Because he wants us to know that the true rule in the world is God's rule. There's nothing that can overpower God, that God is sovereign. And, And that's not just a theological word. That means that Satan's power, Satan's cunningness, means nothing compared to the God that we serve and we worship. And though we are weak, he is strong and He perfects His strength in our weakness. Therefore, as the battle rages on, we are to look to Him for help for His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And Paul continually reminds the Ephesians of the power of God that's at work in their lives. I know I've uh, studied through the book of Ephesians a number of times in my life and the one thing that has struck This time that I have never seen before is how much Paul talks about the power of God. And I would encourage you to go back and to read this. Ephesians 1, chapter 19 through 20. This power is nothing less than the power of Jesus Christ demonstrated in his resurrection and his exaltation. Since we have been raised with him and are seated with him, Ephesians 2, 6, that power is ours in him we do well to pause and to ask ourselves if we are truly persuaded that our God is as powerful as He really is. You see, how we view Jesus will be a major factor in our regularly going to Him to obtain mercy and to find grace to help in the time of need, as we read in Hebrews 4.16. If we don't think Jesus is powerful, all-powerful, then as we go through these struggles... We will not lean upon him. We might go to Jesus and say some prayers and say, Lord, help me, make me strong. And then we may turn around and we may go try to figure it out ourselves. And and it's like, okay, Jesus, you can help me too, but I'm still going to work on this. And there's a sense in which we're not really resting upon him. We must never forget that Jesus is no longer the suffering servant of Jehovah dying on the cross. Rather, he is the exalted king of heaven and earth reigning on high. Jesus is the risen head of the church who fills all in all, as we read in Ephesians one twenty-three, that he is the one in whom dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily And we're not to file these truths about Christ in some dusty theological cabinet. Instead, brothers and sisters, they are to prod us to action as we live our lives throughout the week. And it's this knowledge about our Lord that is drive us to the one who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we think or imagine. Look, if you would, with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1, verse 17. Okay, let me just read through this. And I want you to notice, I'll just give you an example how Paul talks about his power, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saint, and what is the what? The immeasurable greatness of His power. Brothers and sisters, not the greatness of His power, but the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His, what? Great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Far! Far! Above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen? Here we see Christ's unrivaled power in his resurrection, his ascension, And his exaltation. There is no power that compares to him. And if you don't get anything else out of this sermon, I want you to hear this. That Christ is higher than all and far superior to all powers that exist, including every demonic and spiritual power. Our God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. Our God is omniscient. He's not just cunning like Satan. Our God knows everything. And He is also omnipresent. He is with us in the midst of the battle. No matter where we're at, no matter what we're going through, when it's 2 o'clock in the morning and we can't sleep and we're tempted to get up on the computer and maybe look at things that would be inappropriate, our God is there to give us strength. And brothers and sisters, we are to call out to Him for that strength and he will give it to us you know one of my favorite Christian movies is a movie called war room okay now I'm not condoning all the theology in that film please don't hold me to that but what it does do is it's a story about a woman who is having trouble in her marriage and other things in her life and she's just struggling and she's trying to figure out how she can fix all these things and she meets this old woman who is a prayer warrior and she said sweetheart you need to pray about these things And she said, well, no, I have. I'm a Christian. And she goes, you need to pray. You need to get down on your knees and you need to pray. And so she began to write her prayer requests and post them. And every day she had her prayer closet that she would go into and she would pray and she would seek the Lord's strength and she would ask Him for His help and the Lord began to change her life. Now, life wasn't always easy for her. It wasn't just like all of a sudden it's a happy ending and everything was great. But she recognized that she lived in the midst of a spiritual battle and that the weapons that she was to use were spiritual weapons. And as we are strong in the Lord, God tells us that we will be able to stand. Paul says that if we are clothed ourselves with what God supplies us, we can stand against the adversary of our souls. Now next week, Ben's going to talk about spiritual armor. So I won't get into that today. But it is clear from this that the Christian life is not intended... To be one of defeat in which the devil is constantly having his way with us. You know, it's true. We're going to lose some battles. And we're going to have some hard times. But the believer is ultimately the winner. Because he who is in him is greater than he that is in the world. And he tells us here that we will stand firm. And what that means is is that we will hold our position continuously. It suggests a soldier firm and steadily uh, standing while under attack. And Paul is calling us to put on the full armor of God so that the devil will not gain one inch in our lives or lead us off course. Paul's point is is that he doesn't want us to be pushed around by the enemy of our souls. Rather, he wants us to stand on the narrow path that leads to life. I, I love what Stanley Gale says. He says, standing is not passive. The idea is not to stand around, but to stand firm. It's to stand like an oak against the winds of Satan's lies that would sway us, against the floods of his temptations that would sweep us away, and against the leeches of his accusations that would deprive us of grace. It is to stand rooted and built up in Christ, strengthened in the faith. If our victory is in Christ, then we are to be grounded in Christ, hearing and doing His word and living in the power of His resurrection, following His example and resting in His victory. Brothers and sisters, a Christian life is not easy and I'm not here to suggest that. You know, we have our own sinful tendencies to deal with, do we not? We have the baggage of having to deal with other people who have sinned against us and all that comes with that. We have the problems and challenges of a church that sometimes lets us down, that's imperfect, and that is filled with people who are tempted to sin and sometimes disappoints us. Kirk of the Plains is not a perfect church. We have the opposition and the allurements of the world. And beneath all of this is Satan, who is a worthy adversary and one for us to consider. But as we stand firm in the strength of the Lord, we can stand. It's not something that we just stand for a little bit and then we defeat the enemy. The, defi- the enemy's already been defeated in Jesus Christ. We are to stand firm and he will make advancement after advancement after advancement. But in the strength of the Lord, he will allow us to to stand firm in Him, to His glory and praise. Amen? Let's bow our heads and think about these things this morning. Lord, we thank You for a word from the Lord that comes to us through Your Word. And we pray, God, that we might take these things to heart and to meditate upon them. Lord, this week as we are in the midst of this battle, in the midst of these struggles, as, as t- Satan tempts us to, to worry or to, to fret, or Lord, to feel like we're out of control and we have to do something. Uh, help us, O oh God, instead to turn to you, to look to stand in your strength, not to resolve, not to get rid of Satan, but to stand firm against Satan. Uh, knowing, O oh God, that you are at work in our lives. Father, I pray for those that might be here today that have gone through much spiritual battle and maybe are weary. Oh God, please give them strength. Give give them the rest that comes in in working in your strength and in your power. Lord, if there be any here today who don't know you, I pray that you would open their eyes to see the glory of who you are and the call that you give them to come to you to repent and turn from their sin and to rest in you. Oh Lord, we thank you for this word and pray, God, that as we stand firm that you would be glorified and that people would know that Jesus Christ is Lord, that there is none that is greater than him. To you be all the glory and honor and praise. Amen.